0: Up next, on Episode 59 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff sit down with Damian Katz to discuss unconventional databases, unconventional programming languages, and taking on unconventional programming projects from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley.
1: Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Unless somebody drops the F-bomb or
2: something crazy. Right. All right. <laughs> 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 so, should we introduce our, de- our, our guest, Damian Katz? I think of, we should. Of CouchDB fame. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> 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 that was a very authoritative intro, Damian. What? That's great. So, yeah, thanks for agreeing to be on the show. And then we should give a little bit of background about Damien. And actually, one of the reasons I've known Damien, well, known is a very loose term, but I I sort of discovered his blog like a long time ago, gosh, back in 2005. Hmm. When did you start your big adventure, Damien? When did that, what was the timeline for that?
3: Uh, I think it was around 2005. that. I think it was 2004 when we decided. I think it was 2005 when uh, we actually moved to Charlotte.
2: Yeah. yeah. So so I, I kind of discovered you. you right at the, sort of near the beginning of your journey. And at first, let me tell you, I was very angry with you because this was, I w- at the time I was reading your blog, I was at a job where I had to work with Lotus Notes every day because it was our <laughs> email system. So I found, I was like, oh yeah, I found this developer. I, I, I hate this guy. I hate this guy. He worked on Lotus Notes. And so it was a way for me to sort of take out my uh, corporate rage on you. But then I felt bad because you were actually kind of a nice guy and kind of an interesting blogger and so I, I grew to love you I think is what happened
3: <laughs> you know you're uh I, I get that a lot about you know people with, with their dislike of lotus notes so um I'm always kind of nervous you know about that to say well you know it's I don't want to I don't want to dump on it you know because uh, I worked hard on a lot of people work really hard on it um and it's the way that it is for a reason but I also know that it's also in kind of uh Big bloated mess and I understand your frustrations.
0: So. I wanna I wanna go out on limbs and say that Lotus knows rocked for its era and that the reason people hate <laughs> it is because they were forced to make it do things that it couldn't do because it had been sold at the enterprise level with all kinds of you know, Lotus salespeople.
3: Yeah, I, I I sort of think it was a little bit ahead of its time. Um they had to invent so much stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean imagine like the web didn't exist, right? So you couldn't. Not, do not only the web HTTP. didn't exist,
3: but but a uh, proper networking uh, the internet oh right right exist. you didn't
0: even have to, you couldn't even assume tcpip because that wasn't yet i on. don't
3: i don't think they supported tcp <laughs> tcpip in its uh, first versions <laughs> it's, but but they had to write like all their own modem
0: drivers and stuff like that wow
3: so that uh, pcs could dial into servers to replicate and i, uh,
0: I remember once getting into banker's trust Uh, A day after, somebody had accidentally emailed a gigabyte file using Lotus Notes, which Lotus Notes then tried to synchronize to all the bankers' trust sites around the world, completely saturating their transatlantic cable in the middle of the trading day and making it possible to do trades for about 24 hours. Yikes. They were very upset about that. But they were really just using it. I mean, there they were just using it as email. And there were some databases that a few people had built. But for for a lot of the companies that installed it, it was just sort of an email system.
2: Yeah. I don't want to well, talk I, too much
0: about Lois Notes. No, I it's not. We want to talk about CouchDB.
2: Well, yeah, well, it's I was going to have a transition point. There, actually, uh, there's this presentation Damien gave, CouchDB and me, at Ruby Fringe, which is excellent. I'll link it from the show notes. But I, I found it very inspirational. And and, and Damien, having, knowing a lot of your story, this, this gave me sort of the missing pieces to fill in. I, I sort of had bits and pieces of the story. But hearing the whole story from you was, was great. And I really – that was a – Great, great talk. And one of the transition points that you put in was that I liked was like you had worked with Lotus Notes, and there were things in Lotus Notes that were actually good ideas that were kind of being buried under sort of loads of crap. Yeah. And your idea was to take the good stuff from Lotus Notes and leave all the crap behind. And that's a feeling that I think anybody that's worked on a large system has that feeling of like there's some good stuff in here, but it's just there's so much annoying bad stuff that comes with it that if only I could start another company take the really good stuff and just, you know, yeah. concentrate it and distill it down to something really awesome. I'd have a really good product. And I think that's what you did with couch DB, right? With like yeah. the good stuff.
3: Well, you know, when I, when I started off on what I was going to work on, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be what, what couch is now. And, um, you know, at, at the time Lotus notes, you know, and it's still not, it's not a very sexy thing. It's kind of old. And, you know, a lot of people have very strong, uh, feelings against it. Um, and so it's like, it's just not sexy. And, uh, and then to come up and, and, and finally say, well, I, I'm not going to do something sexy. I'm going to do something that's like light Lotus notes, um, was a hard decision, but it was a great decision. Like I, I was kind of chasing after a lot of other things that seemed hip at the time and, 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 uh, you know, wanted to do something with RSS or whatever. Uh, but I don't know. I just said, well, I'm going to take this old boring thing and kind of spruce it up. And uh, I don't know. Now it's turned into the new sexiness. So (laughs) I I don't know how that happens. But, um, you know, at the time, I really didn't think that it would, uh, you know, catch on like it did. I thought that maybe I could get the Lotus guys interested in it and the rest of the world would just kind of ignore it. But it's actually turned out to be the opposite.
0: So um, what what do you... uh, it's it's a database, it's a document database, and it's got the right. ragged right edge or whatever. That what's the what's the term I'm looking for? Is that like every row can be a different? Right, well, right. Oh, oh, uh, like every row, huh?
3: Well, it, it, it it's more, it's schemaless.
0: Schemaless, right? So um, every row can have different um, columns in it, essentially. Columns,
3: yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we don't. I mean, we, so we call them documents,
0: right? Because there right.
3: is no concept of rows. Um, there is within the view engine, but the database itself is just like a big bucket of documents. Hmm. Um, so you can consider each each uh document a row, um, and they all have an ID associated with them. So, and that's unique across um all instances of of the database. So you can
0: have also uh, replication, but oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um. So that's very much like the same – that's the same, kind of very much the same as the engine in Lotus Notes. In yeah, right. It,
3: so, so Lotus Notes is, is – the, the NSF database um, is basically the, the same design. Mm-hmm. You have a big bucket of documents, mm-hmm. and each one has a, a name associated with it. In, in Lotus Notes, the, you can't set the names they're, and they their uh, GUIDs, but in CouchDB – um, you can name it any string, and if you don't name it, CouchDB gives it a name, which is good.
0: Uh-huh. And Erlang, what's this about Erlang? I Erlang, I hear.
3: <laughs> uh, so Erlang, um, yeah, Erlang is is been fantastic. For really, CouchDB. um, it's it's an so so far the the total lines of source code, uh, production source code in CouchDB is under twelve thousand lines. Um, wow. And most of that is, is Erlang. And of course that's not including some of the other projects that we, uh, include in our source control. Right. But the so you got like
0: Lucene and stuff like that.
3: Well, not, not Lucene, but maybe someday. Um, but we have like a, a web server from a third party, um, and a web client. Oh, okay. Uh, party, things like that. Um, but, but yeah, those are generalized libraries. So they're not specific to couch TV.
0: And what uh, not a lot of programmers have ever seen or heard of Erlang. What what Erlang? Yeah, Erlang, I
3: don't know, Erlang, Erlang.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um what what is it? Where where did it come from? What does it do? What what's what, why would you use this weird language? So yeah, what was, problem
2: what problem did
3: it solve for you that you had? Uh what problem did it solve for me? So <clears throat> it's this idea of what happens when everything kind of goes to shit. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that that really attracted me. We to, should all be writing in uh, this then. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, as I was designing the the core of this this database system, um, and I was doing it in uh, C plus plus at the time, uh, and I was trying to figure out, you know, if this goes wrong, what's going to happen? How do I back out of this? Um, you know, what happens when the shit hits the fan? And trying to so this would all be all like
2: networking goals. errors, like.
3: Uh, networking errors, memory errors—you just can't allocate uh, enough memory to finish the operation. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, you might get a disk I/O error, but you know that's the sort of thing. Like you, you're allowed to panic and and just give up at that point. Um. But uh, you know how to deal with particularly with with memory errors. You know, at any time you can just not be able to allocate memory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you deal with that? And uh, it's it's extremely tricky. Um in and, and, and C it's all very explicit. So you actually can do it down to that level of okay, if I don't have any memory, what am I gonna do? How do I free my resources? Because you have to think about all that stuff anyway. Yeah, and
0: you're basically writing code to deal with that under every possible circumstance. Right. At every possible level.
3: Um and so, you know, coming up designing all this, um and, and I realize that there's just one problem that you can't get around without using uh, relocatable memory. Which is like uh, using memory handles, um, mm-hmm. which is the, the memory fragmentation problem. Right. So if, if you're allocating raw off the heap, um, and then you're freeing, any long-lived process, eventually the heap's going to get fragmented, and then you you can't allocate any more memory, mm-hmm. or it, it it becomes so fragmented that you're constantly miss having cache misses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so dealing with those problems is is really, really difficult to see. And if you want to deal with it properly, then you have to add another layer of abstraction. We have memory handles. You have to lock the handles and get the pointer. and
0: Just like Win16 programming.
3: Right. And it's really, really painful. And you don't want to have to do all that. It's a huge uh, productivity drain. But this is actually the, the area that Erlang handles great um, because it doesn't force you to do a lot of air handling or checking or anything. Uh, just it... So what's the easiest way to describe it? Um, you just sort of write the code like it's supposed to be, and it's allowed to blow up. Okay. You don't have to sit there and check for errors. And if it blows up, it's it's supposed to be in a nice little isolated process within the Erlang VM. And this, this isolated process, it doesn't have any locks held. It doesn't have any references to shared memory. And it, and it can't be in an invariant state outside of its own process. It can't have... Well, it, it can if you design it Poorly, but by default, it can't. Hmm. So if this if this process can't can no longer continue, it just gets uh, killed, and then the heap gets freed, and then that gets freed back to the VM, and it's a nice big contiguous chunk. Um, and if things start to get fragmented, things get slow. Then more and more of these heaps can get get freed, and then they can all be rebuilt. And so this this idea that that you're it's allowed to blow up, and then it'll sort of rebuild it back the process state for you. Um, not exactly as it, as it was, but it'll reinitialize. It'll say okay, this thing is the shit's hit the fan. Let's let's shut these components down and then restart them and then hopefully things will continue and if not it'll actually start to restart more components.
0: So this and, sort of uh, this sort of reminds me of like a web server that's running multiple processes on your behalf based on how many requests are coming in. Yes, and, and the only error handling you have is that a request can just, you know, return up 500. And that whole process goes away, and then there's some, there's some maybe some teaming right. that's sitting there spinning up new processes for you to make up for all the ones that crashed and went away.
3: Right. So, so Erlang is very much so that that style of web server handling is like the Unix style huh. of of web serving, and, and right, Erlang is like the the whole Unix ideal of isolated processes that can talk to each other, encoded um, mm-hmm. into a VM and made really efficient.
0: So, are these processes? Short-lived, like to handle a single request. Or some of them are even shorter than that, or
3: yeah, some some of them are. You just spawn a process to do some computations because you want to parallelize it, um, and you know use your cores, and then they go away. So spawning um, uh, a new process is is like creating a new object in Java. It's super cheap. It's not like spawning a thread,
0: um, or even like kicking off a process on Windows might be you know oh, a right, second right. Of wall clock time or something. Well,
3: right, that's that's like literally like a million times more expensive. Right. Um, the, creating an airline process is just a little virtual thing. It has a scheduler. Each process is, I think by default, like half a K, like 512 bytes or something. Cool. Um, and then it grows from there, you know, as it uses memory.
0: And is has the performance compared to, you know, C or C++ or or...
3: So, so one of the, or... the interesting things about the performance of Erlang is that it's generally pretty slow... Uh, when it's not heavily loaded, when you have like a single client, um, hmm. it generally loses in the benchmarks. It, it definitely loses to C, but it's going to lose to a lot of other languages like Java um, and uh, C#. Is there
0: something that's like interpreted, or is it uh, like is there well, a bytecode uh, down yes, there? Yes, it is, c- and there's,
3: there's no reason that it has to be slower than Java um, or C#. Um, even though it's it's an interpreted language, um, it, it's also got a JIT. It's right. just, it hasn't had the number of, you know, man years dedicated right. to optimizing it. Right. Um, so, <clears throat> what was I talking about?
0: Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah the per, performance-wise, it. it's, 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 you're saying it was slow, like, right. so, with one process. So, the, these little processes,
3: um, each process, uh, it, it's not like a whole um, thread, which is m- a much heavier weight. An OS thread is a pretty heavy thing. It's got a... A big call stack, which you know is is can be up to a megabyte or more, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's it's got all these hooks in the OS. I, you know, I don't even know all the stuff that, that's in there, but they're they're far far heavier than the the Erlang process. Sure,
0: it's got a copy of the environment,
3: and and so when you have threads and then you swap you you switch between threads, then like for instance that, that thread stack now has to get loaded into memory. Mm-hmm. And it has to get um, when I say into memory out of main RAM into uh, the the local the L two and L one caches mm-hmm. in order to to quickly access. So that that takes a, a bunch of time, and that might actually saturate the whole cache, depending on how much data the the current thread is reading off of the stack. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's going to evict a bunch of things off of the stack. And then if you have a big shared memory environment, you might be pulling in another page just to read it one byte. Um, but the way the modern OS, the modern hardware works, uh, loading the, the from main memory, it's going to not just load that byte, but it's also going to load a big area around it. The whole page or right. whatever, yeah. And then it's going to have to evict some data. So, and that's fine when, when you have basically a, a single-threaded environment where you have all that second, you don't have to swap it out. So, so in a lot of benchmarks, when, when you're trying to do something as fast as possible and you have a single thread, that's going to be the way, and you're not paying that price of constantly swapping it out. When you start to get a bunch of these threads, then then you, you constantly have contention for not only the memory bus on different processors, but also each processor's local cache as you swap things out. Mm-hmm. Now, with Erlang, these processes are super tiny, and their heaps are, are really small. Mm-hmm. So when Erlang schedules a process, it doesn't have to swap in a whole call stack. It just swaps in the Erlang call stack, which is because it's... Uh, uh, tail call optimized. It's usually pretty small. Mm-hmm. And then it swaps in its heap for all of its data as soon as it's going to access something out of that. Mm-hmm. And the heap is also small. And as long as that process is computing and not messaging out, then everything that it's going to be doing is now going to be nicely in cache. And it's not going to have to evict a bunch of other stuff. And it's not going to uh, keep, keep hitting main memory for, for you know wherever it is, some, something that's in another process. So when you when, so when you do message another process, then that actually is going to often cause a, a, a cache page fault, and then it's going to have to load things into memory. But that's more explicit, like it, within your programming, it's obvious that you're
0: doing that. So it sounds like Erlang is the kind of language you choose because you want to do specific. You you want this particular multi-threaded behavior, basically.
3: Well, right. You want so the cheap threads and the. Right, when you want to support a bunch of clients and you don't want it to slow down because you know, they keep connecting, Erlang is ideal because each each client that it's servicing can be represented as processes or a collection of processes, and all the memory within those processes are, are much more tightly bound together, so they're much more cache friendly. Mm-hmm. So this this idea of swapping stuff out of main memory into the caches um, just is much much more efficient in Erlang when it's under load. Got it and and that's one of the 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 big performance boosts that you see you don't start to see good airlang performance comparable to other things until you start to put it under heavy load where you you got you're servicing a lot of clients
0: is it um is this a language that's you, where did this come from
3: so this was uh they they started it in the 80s um it was a project at ericsson mm-hmm. um which
0: is which was I, the- I don't, it, they they made phone switches or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. So
3: it, it, it's designed for telecom and it's designed for phone switches. Um, and they, they liked this uh, shared nothing architecture. They wanted the hot code reloading. Um, just a lot of things that were very specific to telecom. And they wanted to solve these problems and, and give themselves a tool that mm-hmm. did all these things nicely. Um, and uh, I don't know. It, it's got a checkered history. Like it got kicked out of, of Ericsson sometime in the the 90s and, <laughs> um, and then they were going to rewrite all the, the airline code and see and then I guess that they sort of abandoned that because they realized that was foolish and uh, I don't know but yeah that, that's its origin is is telecom and Ericsson so cool
2: but you didn't you didn't set out to use Erlang. I mean you had a problem you're like how can I solve my problem it was, was that the approach I remember I, I remember in yeah. your presentation you said you read about it on Lambda the ultimate or something yeah I think that's
3: where I, I first read about it um but yeah the first versions of CouchDB that I was writing were in C++ and,
2: and it was just it was just backing out of all these error conditions was just so painful right well That's actually what, that uh, was the motivation. it it
3: it was when I started getting into the concurrency aspects of it um so uh, i so w-
2: it was a thing where you're trying to scale or no was I, I was motivation. just trying to
3: actually do uh serve more than one client at once so i had this <laughs> database engine working but
2: right. you're trying to get n greater than 1 for the clients. Right. <laughs> uh, so well, that's, were, I mean, that's the first uh, – that's a lot is, of work there. No, believe me.
0: Yeah. No, you know, what, what did Microsoft yeah, we, Access have that Dbase 3 didn't have?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. no, we haven't actually gone past n, n equals 1 on on web servers on Stack Overflow, and we're kind of dreading it because we do have some shared state. Not a lot, but some. Oh, so, yeah, we, no, I pre- appreciate took, the significance yeah. of the problem, believe me.
0: Um, Yeah. So, um, are you? Uh, you were working for uh, Lotus, and then Lotus got bought by IBM. Yeah, and now you're working for IBM again.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, IBM is—they um, pay me to work on CouchDB and to help them with their cloud computing stuff. Cool. And uh, yeah, IBM has been really great. Um,
0: but you get to work uh, from home pretty much.
3: Is yeah, I get a- to work from home. I was I was really leery about joining because I I, I thought they had ulterior motives that you know they were gonna try to snuff out my project or something like that but hey. um
0: <laughs> who's got the energy to snuff out a <laughs> All right, well you know i don't know uh <laughs> I, I, I was
3: just uh I, i've had bad experiences with ibm in the past but it's a huge company and this sure. is a different division um and uh you know i i just didn't know what to expect but um ibm has has been fantastic and uh but this, is, is, this
2: is open source, though. This isn't like a product at IBM. This is kind of a different N- thing. But it sort right. of
0: competes against their product, Notes. In uh, a
2: sense.
3: Not mm-hmm. really. Not, not yet. I mean, because Notes is, is a whole uh, thing, whole stack. You know, sure. It's not just a, a back-end database. It's also a client with the UI and all these applications that are already built for it and everything. Um, so, you know, potentially it is because it duplicates the... One of the, the core aspects of their technology, um, but I'm also I'm trying to 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 get them you know going on uh, uh, a hosted version of CouchDB, um, trying to sell them on that. And um, so they would
0: you know, m- make available a hosted version of CouchDB,
3: right, for a monthly fee. Does anybody
0: do that? Uh,
3: right now, yes. Uh, couch.io, couch.io is a hosting provider hmm. um, for CouchDB, but they are invite only right now. Um, and I think there's at least one other. I know there's at least one other startup that provides it, but they're in stealth mode, so I don't know if they want me to talk about them.
0: It would sure be a different world if IBM did something like this.
3: Yeah. I, well, I, I think it makes uh, a lot of sense on a lot of levels. So, um, I'm 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 working on it.
0: Um. If if somebody wants to build something on top of Cache um, CacheDB, like they want to use it, I don't know. Let's say they're building a blogging platform, for example. Uh, are and they want to use it. I mean, they could use a hosted version. Yeah, right, right, exactly. um, Um, But but does that mean that they're building their blogging platform on some other hosting platform and every single one of their I.O. requests has to go over to the hosted CouchDB? Or do they somehow run side-by-side or in process?
3: Well, so there's this thing called CouchApps where um, we can serve applications right from CouchDB. Okay. So you you don't need any middleware at all. What do you write Uh, them in? It's it's in JavaScript. Okay, cool. So the language uh, of the future,
2: JavaScript. Server side
0: JavaScript.
3: Yeah, I you know when we when when we switched over to JavaScript, um, it was just kind of out of uh, uh, a practical matter, and uh, it, because it's it's a it's it's an available language that that plays very well with JSON and uh, has a nice sandbox. And uh, I don't know, and all of a sudden it seems like it's everywhere now. It's, it's exploding, so I couldn't have made a better choice. I'm really not. I don't understand wh- why all of a sudden it's becoming so popular.
2: <laughs> well, I think you, you, you. The way I understood it, is you finally hooked in JSON and JavaScript. I mean, you kind of hooked into sort of the popular. Well, I guess popular is not the right word, but the 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 common denominator language that, that a lot of people say. Say, oh, I get that. Yeah. You know. It's not obscure, well, it's just something you can... And I think in your presentation, I know I keep coming back to this, but I loved your presentation, you talked about how all of a sudden you were working in the browser, you had downloaded some JavaScript uh, command line thing, and you were able to like insert data in the database in JavaScript, and, and all of a sudden it seemed real to you. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and I think that's probably the reaction a lot of people had, right? Yeah. I don't think yeah. that's unique. So I think when you say, why did it get popular, I think you've got to think about... How can we make this accessible to the average developer? And certainly, running in the browser, having JavaScript just magically do stuff—I mean, that's pretty accessible. So, well, I mean, well, when it, clarify. I'm talking about why did why is JavaScript
3: suddenly so hot? Um, is is my big question? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, part because of it, it is it, because it's been around since no. uh, what is it, '96?
2: But it hasn't really worked until, like, 2005. <laughs> when was the first time? I mean, because I, I know Paul Graham, his famous thing for Web 2.0 is, is Web 2.0 can be loosely translated as JavaScript now works okay. reliably. you know. And that didn't really happen, honestly, until about 2005, 2006, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, it was a matter of um, getting rid of some of the cross-platform problems, even just being able to access the DOM. I mean, the first versions of JavaScript couldn't manipulate the DOM. They didn't have dynamic HTML. Do you remember when all you could do is put edit boxes up? And yeah. You could change those, but you couldn't like you know hide a paragraph or something.
3: Yeah, and like you could uh, throw up an alert box, and that
0: was like, wow, that was that's like, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and it sort of looked like a toy language to so many that it it didn't get a, you know, it 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 started
2: as sort of a, I guess a scheme implementation. <laughs> yeah, that's something I learned on the podcast was that it, the guy who created it was like a scheme guru or something. Brendan Eich. Yeah. Mm. I didn't know that. So it so has it's some got, street
0: cred. Yeah, it's got that. It's got the functional programming. It's got the lambdas. It's got some some nice stuff in there.
3: Yeah, I real I actually I don't know JavaScript that well. Um, so uh, I just it was just kind of dumb luck that I picked the right
2: language. Well, you know, it's funny. You, you said you didn't know SQL either. There was a stint where you worked for MySQL, and, and yeah. part of your you mentioned like <laughs> I didn't even know SQL. I was like, how can how could you be a developer and not, how did you get away with not knowing SQL <laughs> until <laughs> like last year I, or whatever? Well, I know blows that. Away.
3: It's also I don't, I don't know how to use a spreadsheet either. So
2: those are like the two <laughs> things. You're gonna like... make Joel cry. Don't say that. Don't <laughs> no, that's you, you know actually there's just, uh,
0: the, just there's a difference between being a systems programmer and application programmer. An application programmer has to know SQL, and a systems programmer doesn't. And Damien okay. is a systems programmer. You don't have well, to know I, I started either.
3: off as an applications programmer, but it was it was in the Lotus world, so that's that's why I had almost no exposure to SQL.
2: Yeah. Now. Uh, another thing I want to comment on, Damien, is that you basically quit your job with the intent of building something. And well, no, I, I think I, I didn't. I didn't quit my job, but oh, that's right, I you did, were laid off. I did I'm stop sorry. looking. Clarification.
3: <laughs> yeah, I did stop looking, and and it, it. I did have some good leads on a job. I wasn't like unemployable or something, but
2: right, right. Now just to clarify. Sure, but I, but I liked your particular quote here was that I didn't want to spend all my time at the office working on someone else's crap anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll work on and, my and I like that. And you know, when I met you, and again, I use the term met loosely because we had sort of interacted through the blog and sort of got to know each other. It yeah. was like, I could see that you had this dream of CouchDB, but it was hard for me to interact with it because it was your dream. You know, it was like your thing that you were building and it yeah. wasn't necessarily my dream, right? And that that's not wrong, but it was just hard for me to hook into it. Uh, but I totally respected that you were out there saying, hey, I'm going to build something that I think you know it has value right that i believe yeah. in like i'm going to work on my own crap and a lot of yeah. times when i try to explain to people like the whole stack overflow story it's it, at some point you do reach that realization it's like are you going to build other people's stuff are you going to build your own stuff you know at some level ahead, that's such know, a, after key a while, you get tired right?
3: of, of other people you know making it your success impossible you know or or not impossible but just making it harder and um You know, you want some sort of degree of control and you want to be able to say, yes, this is, I made this and, you know, this is what it is um, and I'm responsible for it. You know, I can't blame somebody else. Um, Right.
2: Yeah, so... It was very, very inspirational. I mean, I I love that presentation and it really completed the picture for me. Another point that I want to talk about was, and I wonder, you know, I'm always telling people, you know, what a great book Code Complete is. And in your presentation, you said at one point, you know, you have analysis paralysis where you're working on your own thing. There's nobody telling you what to do. And mm-hmm. then you sort of like reach a decision point where you're like, I can't decide what I should be doing or how I'm supposed to be doing this. There's nobody telling me what to do anymore. And now it's kind of like you don't know what direction to go in. And I believe the slide title was Panic. And then yeah. your solution to that was to buy a copy of Code Complete. And I'm just imagining yeah. the smooth... <laughs> you know, calming voice of Steve McConnell, who very actually does have a very calming Midwestern voice, very soothing. If you ever heard him speak? And I just imagining you reading code complete too, and being all calm <laughs> and smooth and saying, I do know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, you know, it,
3: I, I read the book and I did, I, I remember just getting it and just feeling like instantly, like I had, I don't know, like a life raft or something like, I just wanted to hold it and say, yes, yeah, like something that, that can show me the way. And, um, and then I was reading it and, you know, and everything in it made sense. And it's a good book. It, it it has lots of really great advice. But, you know, the thing that struck me was how little new information I was getting from it. And I was like, yeah, hey, I know this stuff. But, you know, where's the secret? And, and then you know, I, I guess eventually I just realized, well, yeah, I, if, if this were this book were teaching me all sorts of new things that I didn't know, then I guess I would be pretty dumb for having done this, you know. And, uh, so I don't know, it it was, it was, it didn't really help me in that it it gave me great advice. Um, it just, it helped me and it just gave me confidence that yes, I know that stuff.
2: Right. Well, Um, that's great. And that's, uh, that's one of the things I love about the book is I keep going back to it. You know, I think it appeals to all skill levels like, if you're a beginner and you truly don't know anything about what you're doing, it'll sort of give you guidance. And then if you're an expert, it sort of reinforces, Hey, I actually do know what I'm doing. I'm not some loser who's just, an idiot out here creating God knows what, but I'm actually a competent professional, right? Like, I know what I'm doing. Um, and I love that part of the message, too. That was great. And then the final thing about the presentation, I know I'm going on and on about it, but uh, the, can you comment on the, the douchebags line? No. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> there was a meeting with IBM, so, so just take it away there, Damien.
3: No, I Well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so so when 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 i
3: b m came knocking and, and I wasn't really sure of their intentions um i you know i I sent this email um that started off kind of nice, but I got angrier as I was writing it because i just i felt like somebody was trying to take away this thing I was creating, and you know i just i kind of had some some antipathy towards towards i b m at that point and it was just kind of coming out and, and I
2: and I said, you know, IBM's got a lot of douchebags. <laughs> um, <laughs> and describe what, what you what mean I, by douchebags. Like the type of person who does what? 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 Give me some examples.
3: Well, right. So then they asked me. He asked me to change that line. He he, he said change the language, and and that was like the only thing that was really kind of bad language in it. So I changed that line. I changed it to to vapid bureaucrats. <laughs> <laughs> They're synonyms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the the thing is. It's, it's not easy to tell who's who. You know, the, the you get these guys who are really smooth talkers or whatever, and, you know, you think, oh, yeah, he's not going to fool me, but, you know, that's not my, been my experience. I can't figure out who's really competent and who's not. And, uh, you know, that's basically the, the point I was trying to get across there um, was that they have a lot of of
0: vapid bureaucrats and also a lot of really great people, but you
3: can't tell the difference all the
0: time. (laughs) There's an organization that large is going to have people that are optimizing for their local area rather than optimizing for the good of the company or the good of the world or.
3: Right. And IBM is, is a huge company. I mean, it's close to, to 400,000 people and it's all over the world and it's in every, every niche. And, uh, there there's no one way to characterize IBM. there's just not right um, in some areas they're absolutely brilliant and in some areas they're absolutely horrible and um, in, in any company that size that's going to be true mm-hmm.
2: but what damage specifically had these kind of people done to you in the past like i'm just I, I just want some examples <laughs> of not only names obviously but just your interactions with these people. How had they sort of caused damage to your project or you personally? I mean like what what's you must have had something in mind when you said this?
3: Oh, yeah, this is going to get back to when IBM took <laughs> over Iris. Uh, th- let's just say that, that Iris, where I used to work on Lotus Notes, that um, was the, the company founded by Ray Ozzy um, and was independent for a while and then owned by Lotus, which was then owned by IBM. Um, and for a while we operated still independently, even when IBM owned us. Um, and then one day that stopped. And they came in and they said, Oh, yeah, we're not going to change anything. It's going to be great. And, uh, and we're just doing this to make it easier to uh, work with other people within IBM so they can come over to your company and work and blah, blah, blah.
0: And then they just proceeded to ruin everything that was good and <laughs> unique about IRIS. So that was, but these are human resource professionals that have run into well, this. I,
3: you know, I don't know who they were. And, you know, they were some of them were big wigs with, you know, British accents and, uh, but was it,
2: was it fundamentally just a disconnect on the engineering side versus like management versus engineering? Like the just pointy headed managers just doing things that made no sense for the actual people on the ground or, uh, you know, I don't know at some level I felt like, um, you know, they just
3: don't know any better. And at some level I just felt like they're just bullshitting us and they know they're, they're full of it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I didn't know. Yeah, and I, and I still don't know.
0: It's but. just organizations. This is what big organizations do. Like there's somewhere there's a manager, and the manager, the manager is optimizing for managing the most number of people in the stablest possible group, because yeah. that that's what optimizes for their career.
3: Yeah, yeah, I <laughs> can see that.
0: So they they appear to have some particular agenda, but their agenda is always just to grow their empire.
3: Well, you know, it, it, well, say I, the kind of things that they told us about what wasn't going to change and what would change. Um, I just that's the things that I, I I don't know if they really understood what they were saying. If they really understood what it was that they were going to change, or if they were just just lying to us you know i can accept incompetence but you know it's really <laughs>
2: there was well, there, well he's always no, no, right there's there's incompetence and there's malice right right but kind of different things so yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. i don't know I see which what... which it was so i have to give them the benefit of the doubt and just say it was uh, incompetence. incompetence yeah
3: hey, hey okay.
0: jeff do we have any um stack overflow slash server fault news for the week
2: uh, some minor news. Uh, right. we're kind of heads down working on some other features that hopefully will come out in the next, you know, six to eight weeks or whatever right. time frame it is. Yeah. Uh, but we do we I did build up two more servers that are gonna be used for uh superuser.com. Two more servers? Yep.
0: Wait, so what do we have well, now? We have two web servers. And a database well,
2: hour. we have we have a bunch of extra servers basically. I would just rather yeah. have extra capacity because we rent rack space, so it doesn't sure. really cost us anything to have these extra servers. Although I did have to run more uh, electrical outlets. We did pay for more amps, just in case. Uh, so we don't have get a grand. A, you don't total. get enough amps with your rack. Well, we do, but it, they always, everybody wants to be super safe in the data center. They yeah. don't want to be anywhere near capacity. Uh, me, you know me, I'm a risk taker. So I'm like, yeah, just push it right to the edge. I don't care.
0: Well, what happens <laughs> is that they, if they have a temporary power outage, when it comes back, everybody draws like three times as much as they're drawing at stable state. Yeah. It's like the computer to power up, but for some reason, these stupid computers turn on all six of their fans. And...
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, they're incredibly loud. When I was building these servers just up to power up, like, I mean,
0: they, and they yeah, use like well, four times the
2: power. Well, let me explain. So we have we have a three-month-old baby. So when I was building up these servers, when I powered on the server, it would trigger his Moro reflex. It was so loud. And this is in two rooms over. His okay. what reflex? Wait. I'm... The Moro reflex is a reflex in infants where they sort of throw their arms out like they're falling. It's sort of a stabilization thing. But they do it when they're surprised or startled or they yeah. think they're falling. So it, it's actually kind of amusing. If you go to YouTube, I'll link it in the show notes. The Moro <laughs> reflex. <laughs> this is nice. Not- Oh, okay. In the
0: show notes. I, I, and this is going to be a picture of your baby.
2: Getting no, 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 no. By It'll be an actual YouTube video of someone triggering the Moro reflex in an infant. But that's how loud they are. Servers are incredibly loud. Okay. So you're right. I mean, at boot up, yeah. they will use lots of power because they got this inc- turn on all their fans at full volume. It's just deafening. Right, right. So uh, the trouble
0: is, you need to be provisioned for that to happen to every server in the entire data center. Or sure. you need to get one of these special PDUs that will turn them on one at a time when the power comes back.
2: Yeah. So no, it's better safe. Where, sorry. Uh, Absolutely. Each, each I, I server has its
3: own uh, battery backup, and maybe for that reason, each yeah. Have has you some... heard about that in their data no. centers? No. E- each individual server has its own little uh, UPS. Oh it's wow! Like, it's built into the chassis. Interesting. Oh,
2: that's, cool. that's
0: cool. I hope the so, fire department doesn't find out about this.
2: <laughs> so we have a grand total. Since you asked, we have six servers. Five one us which are inexpensive, actually, mm-hmm. the 2U database server, right. um, our network-attached storage device, a switch, and I think that's everything. Um, so that's all sitting at the data center. They actually arrived today, so Jeff's going to go down and plug in the two new servers. We also have the logo contest I talked about last week for superuser.com. Yeah, we're going to launch SuperUser. Yeah, the first thing we need for SuperUser really is the logo, because that kind of sets the tone for the colors we're going to use for the site and yeah, stuff. Yeah, because and
0: we can't make a t-shirt until we have a logo.
2: Or stickers. I mean, let's get our priorities correct here. Uh, But yeah, we're excited about the launch of Super User. So as soon as I get the logo together, I think things will go together pretty rapidly from there. Um, And then on the server fault and and, uh, Stack Overflow side, I think everything's chugging along. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've, been, I've been working a lot with our community moderators remember we chose uh, we had a voting process and we chose some stack overflow community, community moderators and also we sort of just ad hoc picked a few people on uh, the server fault side because that's a brand new site there mm-hmm. wasn't anybody to vote and i've been really pleased i've been i have really enjoyed working with the community moderators it's actually fun because a lot of times i'd made these secret decisions of like what should i do with this user and I just felt like kind of a burden, because I was like the one guy making this decision about what we should do with these mi- the occasional misbehavior that we see. It's not a real serious problem. Now you get to have like a click. Yeah, we get to have a... Well, I get to... We get to talk about like, is this the right thing to do? Is this not the right thing to do? And it's kind of nice to be unburdened of being the judge, jury, and executioner of yeah. the these things that it's come like up. It's like the I vice really principal,
0: admit, but now you've got student government.
2: Oh, it's so much better. I didn't really appreciate that <laughs> until I, I did that. Yeah. So... That's really it on, on the Stack Overflow side. Not, not a lot of news this week.
0: Good. Anybody, uh, anybody got a... We got some listener questions. Maybe let's do some Stack Overflow questions.
2: Well, let's do, let's do one listener question really quick. One quick
0: listener question. All yeah. right. We actually have a pretty good one. Uh, let me find it. Hey, Joel and Jeff. First, let me thank you for the podcast. My name is
3: Man Keshet, and I'm from Israel. What is your stance about using open source software in production code when the open source project in question is working, but is either below 1.0 or is not actively maintained? For example, Joel mentioned using Lucent.net in Fogbox, and while there are fresh commits to its SVN repository, the latest release is from April 2007. What would you say to customers who are afraid that using such projects will amper stability?
0: Thanks!
2: Okay. Uh, so first of all, there's two pieces here. One is the, the version number is kind of a, an illusion, right? Particularly in open source. It's oh, yeah, like you a can run- make
0: up any any version number you want. So just because yeah, the like version like number 1. is 0. 0.
2: What does that really mean, you know? Yeah. I, I don't think you can look at the version number as a reliable indicator unless it's like point oh 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 one. right? Then you might worry because it's like, okay, you're so far from one, It's you're scaring me now right, with your point oh oh one. Right, right. Uh, Beyond that, I don't. I don't think it. Most really developers am- are
0: reasonably responsible. Like if they feel like their code is not stable, they'll n- not yet, you know, usable by anybody other than on an experimental basis. Uh, you know, a lot of developers will will use a number below one, and then when they personally feel like it's gotten good enough, they'll move it up to
2: 1.0. Yeah, but I don't know if I trust other developers. That's one thing I've sort of learned. Sure. So, Damien, what would you say? What version number is CouchDB at?
3: uh we're at 0.9 but, doesn't right. that, but it, that doesn't mean that that does 1.0 is next It um, goes to 0.10 um at least before that so
0: and what's your philosophy on on your your version numbers
3: <clears throat> so with with couch TV, we feel it's it's pretty solid as a as a database like you're not going to lose your data um there's not going to be big catastrophic failures because of it
2: um what was the first version number you felt that was actually somewhat usable, that you would actually release into the wild? I was like, okay, here's this thing. What was oh, that version number?
3: <laughs> I, yeah, I, you know, I've been working on this thing a long time. I can't remember <laughs> the version number.
0: <laughs> uh, but it's, it, it's also a sort of a general question of when you're using an open source component. I mean, I guess you're using Erlang, yeah. which itself is a little bit off the beaten path. Are no, yours? it's
3: it's a good question, and um, and you guys use uh, you use Lucene,
0: right? As well, yeah.
3: And, and there's no there's no good answer. Um, yeah, you know, we we use a couple of of uh, third party libraries, um, um, MochiWeb for Erlang, which I highly recommend. Um, I was concerned when we integrated it that it was going to be, you know, we're going to be fixing all their bugs, but uh, for the most part, we've only like we had a very small handful of patches.
0: And we Um, had, um, yeah, Jeff, we had that thing in the WMD thing in uh, Stack Overflow where we basically had to reconstitute the source somehow.
2: Yeah, that was was unfortunate. Um, It was just a stumbling block. Well, it was a stumbling block, but it was kind of a painful one because all we had was the uh, minimized or minified JavaScript. Which, Ooh. you know, all the variables were like A, B, C, everything's all mushed together. You, uh, and we had to basically reverse engineer it because we, the, the lead developer basically fell off the planet. I still don't know what happened to, to John. Uh, John Fraser was his name. Still don't know what happened to that guy. I have not heard anything from him uh, for months and months. And we had had some interactions with him, uh, but we ended up having to just reconstitute it from scratch. So at least we had some form of the source. But yeah, that was, that was painful.
3: How, what did you do did you just use a pretty printer and go from there we just
2: uh, we basically crowdsourced it i mean luckily there were a few people that pitched in somebody ran it through sort of a, a javascript prettifier to start and then we had to just go in and basically look at all the code and, and like reverse engineer variable names and comments and you know it, it's yeah. not fun to work with minified javascript as a production yeah. code base at all so but and, it was and, just and, minified it wasn't obfuscated well minification is kinda of like obfuscation though. It, it is, but it's it, similar. I mean, it's if, not the same. Intentionally, but...
0: obviously it can make it nearly impossible. It's not, no, it as, was... it's not malevolent. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. non malevolent well, minification. <laughs> yeah,
2: it, was, it it was just yeah, it's non malevolent. So but still it was very painful. And Dana Robinson did most of the work on that, actually. So there's also f- sort of a um
0: there's also sort of a question related to this one around using components. I mean I guess uh I think I wrote an article about this once. The the idea is don't use anything that you don't trust or you can't fix if it doesn't work. So if you have the source code, then at least you know you can fix it in in worst case scenario. And if right. you don't have the source code, then you really have to have a much higher level of trust like all right, well this is, you know, this is supported by Microsoft and that's that gives you a higher level of trust because Microsoft usually doesn't leave you completely high and dry. You know, they won't leave you with a completely non-working component.
2: Right. I'm well, I think I think pretty close. <laughs> the question itself had some good uh, guidelines, which is you want to look at the number of commits. I mean, is, you, is you want it to see it's active, still alive? Right. Yeah, is it alive? Are people actually working on it? And then beyond people working on it, how many people are using it? Like, let's say the code was totally stable. Say it's this, this piece of code that has just hasn't changed in five years. Well, that can be okay if, like, hundreds of thousands of people are using this code. Does right. it really matter if it hasn't changed in five years? It right. must be working for all these people. So I think there's a third thing he's not talking about here, which is how many other people are actively using this thing, regardless mm-hmm. of how many commits and how alive the code base is, because it could be totally stable.
0: There's it's also possible. something I've learned to look at, which is that the, the, um, the, uh, the, the velocity of a project is generally more important than, than where it is right now. So having a, a lot of critical mass, if you were trying to, trying to make, uh, you know, if you're trying to use a relational database about 10 years ago, you had to decide between MySQL and PostgreSQL. And PostgreSQL was just better. It was just better in every way. But MySQL, for some reason, had a little bit more momentum behind it. Um, oh, sure. And this is sounding like, you know, like kind of like Weasley or, or like, <laughs> a, like, a, like a, something an MBA might say, but. It, 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 there there was more work going into mysql and so it was getting better faster and it, for a real long-range project that, that was something you had to you had to look at
2: sure i mean actually the same thing applies to couchdB i mean if, if all of a sudden a bunch of people are using it and there's the perception that you know it's the hot new thing then it becomes the hot new thing sure you know? and yeah. hopefully it's, it's based on actual quality in this case <laughs> but well, we there's got certainly some high truth profile to a lot of
3: that. Uh, wins that we can't really talk about right now but Hopefully, they'll be announced soon. We'll cool. get some buzz off of that.
0: Can't be Very announced. Cool. You mean there's some development team somewhere that's using Cache TV for something high profile, and you're not, they're not allowed to say who it is? Yep. Aw. Secrets.
3: Secrets. Sorry. Secrets. But I can't say,
0: well, the we,
3: we're um, included with the Ubuntu 1, um, and that's going to be on 10 million desktops by the end of the year. Uh, Cache TV is going to be a central part of that. Cool. Um, and Ubuntu One is the uh file synchronization and cloud backup and, and access. So oh, wow! Store all your data and, and um, so that's have using CouchDB cloud. for the
0: synchronization.
3: Yep. No kidding. Well, I, I I think they also have other things that they're gonna um other data sources that they're gonna synchronize, but CouchDB is gonna be uh, a major one of them. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and they're. Right now they're paying some of the uh, CouchDB. Well, they haven't paid them yet, but they're hiring <laughs> some of the, the CouchDB guys to uh, add some features that they need.
2: Cool. So Damien, let me get like the, the one paragraph description. Okay, I'm a software developer. I have a data problem. Which data problem, Like how, what pieces of that data problem would make you say, hey, CouchDB is a perfect fit for what you're trying to do? So the, the
3: best way that I've come up with uh, to describe what, what Couch TV is good for is if if whatever it is that you're trying to do wasn't in the computer, if it wasn't you know in the web, what would it look like? And if it ends up being a bunch of documents that get routed around and filed away and signed off and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. then there's a really good chance that Couch
2: TV is a good fit. Okay, so the more loose the data is, where it's not like, okay, rigid set of columns, it's just a bunch of crap in a document... Well, the more it's it, it, like that. It
3: doesn't. It doesn't have to be loose. It's. It's also. Um, you know, would it be documents in real life? So mm-hmm. uh, a contact database is a good example of that. Um, and, and in real life, you know, you'd have your Rolodex, and each little card in there is is a document.
2: What well, like? Um, what about like someone's resume? Would someone's resume be like? If you had a database of resumes, would that be? Right.
3: Yeah. You could definitely store a bunch of resumes um, in CouchDB, and you know, then you can you know, do what all the HR professionals like to do and look at, you know, the ones who have the most qualifications by the number of things on there or whatever. <laughs> the um, number of keyword couch hits. Would be, would be good for, uh, <laughs> you know, telling you who, who has the most experience. Ten years of experience products.
0: with, with Couch TV Right.
3: Um, so that's that's probably an easier question to ask in Couch TV than it is in a relational database.
2: Okay, cool. So uh, did we have any Stack Overflow questions? Now, I know Damien and I was nagging you about Looking at Stack Overflow and picking a question that you liked. Did you see anything that you liked? Uh, anything jump out at you?
3: Yeah. So, uh, can I do transactions and lo- and
0: locks in CouchDB? Oh yeah, I okay. just saw that one.
2: And let me. Uh, What's the number it? of the question at the top of the? Yeah, we number can oh, all look question. it up
3: together. I just pasted it into the Skype chat. Oh, so Joel can see it.
0: It's two nine nine seven two three.
2: 299-723. Okay, got it.
0: Who's this guy who's answering it? Mr. Kurt. Is he one yeah, of the developers know. on the team, or just some?
2: Uh, I don't know. No. He looks know. like uh, he works for ours Technica. He doesn't work for Couch TV. Cool. They must. They must use oh. Couch TV though at ours Technica, I don't, guess. Don't, or... don't.
0: <laughs> we're starting <laughs> no? to figure it out.
2: Okay,
3: so maybe that's uh-huh. a secret
0: thing we're not allowed to.
3: So this guy he he wants to run an auction site. He wants to have a direct purchase as well. In a direct purchase, I have to decrement the quantity field in the item record but only if the quantity is greater than 0. That's why I need locks and transactions. I don't know how to address that without locks or transactions. Can I solve this with CouchDB? So specifically, the way he wants to solve this is is fairly easy. You just if if you have an item record and it has a count on it, then you just load it up, you decrement it by one, and then you save it. If somebody else tried to save it at the same time as you, you'll get back a conflict error. In which case, you'll have to reload the document because they might have changed the count. Um, then you reload the document, increment the count, and then save it again. Um, and if you have a bunch of contention for that, then it might it's unbounded how long it can take, how, how many retries you'd have to do. Um But
0: otherwise, that's how it works. Wait. Sorry, I I got a little bit confused there. But you have, um, if you don't have transactions, you could read it, and then somebody else could read it, and you could update it, and then you could submit your update. You could write your update, and then Mm -hmm. they write their update, and now you've each reduced it by one, but it's only gone down one.
3: Right, because one of you will get the, the, the conflict.
0: Right. Oh, oh! You will, you would get a conflict after you've yeah, read it before. So, you read. so
3: one of the whoever is is updating second. Mm-hmm. Whoever loses the race gets a conflict there, and their their save doesn't happen. So they'd have to retry it, and that means reloading the document, getting that that count field, and then incrementing it and then saving it.
0: They got a conflict simply because they were writing after they had. Uh...
3: Right. So every time you load a document from a CouchDB database, it it, it contains a revision number. It's mm-hmm. like a, a unique ID. Mm-hmm. Um, that says uh, this is a, a particular revision of this document. Oh, I see. When you save it, you have to send back that revision number. Right. And if somebody else has already saved over it, that's how it detects if there's a... Okay, contract. cool,
0: cool. There are also, I mean, there are situations where there may be, in, in a relational database model, there may be situations where it, it's even more complicated than that, like you're trying to write to something else.
3: Right, if you're if if you trying to relate write to a bunch of unrelated data, yeah. um, then CouchDB is not, not going to... It's not really set up for not, that. It's not going to do that for you. Um, if all the data can be, can be contained in a single document, um, then there's no problem. You just update that single document and, and you get the conflict. Does anybody
0: ever try to use CouchDB like alongside a relational database and somehow try to bind records from CouchDB to the relational database? Or, uh, or would uh, that just be like pain... For no, 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 no uh, I, I, I
3: actually think, um, I think somebody has done that, but I could be wrong, or it might have just been a suggestion.
0: Because you know, there's a lot of times, uh, relational database developers have this phobia of putting documents in the relational database. Sometimes justified, and sometimes not. And and they'll tend to build these systems where they they say, well, let's what we'll do is we'll put the the, the large blobs or the large documents in the file system. And a pointer to that file in the relational database, right. and it all seems so simple to them, and that's going to be so easy, <laughs> and disasters occur.
3: Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't understand. I mean, I don't know specifically yeah. uh, what makes relational databases uh, unsuitable for large blobs. I don't think that they are. Right. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know why people are, are have a phobia about that. Um, I, I don't know. It, I it, imagine it, it. it might be uh, they might have perfectly good reasons, but. Um,
0: Oh there's uh, certainly there's certainly um, uh, like a Microsoft access database that would really suck if you tried to put i mean you can put blobs in there but it just doesn't scale right because it's all going into one file which is limited to two gigabytes anyway and so Isn't I can see where the where the phobia comes from but certainly with a modern version of SQL server or Oracle or you know, it shouldn't be a problem to put large blobs in there.
2: So, Sorry. Damien, at the bottom of this question, somebody asked sort of another writer question, which was, "How do you do the classic bank account example of a database tra- transaction in CouchDB? That is, you want to atomically withdraw hundred dollars from Alice's account and deposit it into Bob's account. Right. So, and, it, it, and there's millions actually, of accounts. You can't. This is you know,
3: actually CouchDB's strong point. Um, this this is actually like the perfect fit because uh, if you were doing this as a real accountant with a paper ledger. <laughs> You, mm-hmm. They say accountants don't use erasers. right? And so with, right. with CouchDB, what you would do is you don't decrement a right. person's account and add it to another person's account. Right. Instead, what you do is you have a single transaction document that says, I'm taking X dollars yep. from uh, Alice and adding those X dollars to Bob or maybe uh-huh. also uh, Charlie. Um and that single document now represents that transaction. And then with, with, within CouchDB, uh, you use views to add up what somebody's uh, account is. So you, you add up all their um, deposits and all their withdrawals and all their transfers, um, plus minus, and you do a reduction. and You get you know, what their account balance is. Mm-hmm. So there is – within the database, there's nowhere to update their account balance.
0: Yeah, the balance is not stored. It's calculated on the fly based on what right. transactions have happened. Exactly. Absolutely.
2: I have so, an accounting lesson from Joel in person. So, <laughs> do you remember that
0: so, part? <laughs> vaguely. <laughs> Double entry bookkeeping. It was a bookkeeping, yeah. bookkeeping, yeah. not accounting. Bookkeeping. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> all right, I got a question. I want to do my question.
2: Sure. I Go got a it.
0: server fault question for the first time in history.
2: Ooh, exciting! And it's What's the uh,
0: number n- number one. No, just kidding. It's number two, three, six, two, one.
2: Two,
0: three, six, two, one. Do we really have 23,000 questions? No. These numbers go up faster than the number of questions.
2: Uh, It includes answers as well. Right, right.
0: The question is not that interesting. Just the question is, this guy's running Windows 7. He's got a lot of RAM, and he wants to know if he even needs a page file. Can I just turn off the page file? Since I have as much RAM as I'm ever going to use. And... um, uh, but what's good about this is if it's got the world's best answer I've ever seen that just makes me
2: appreciate server fault. <laughs> That's cool. I, I think every geek at some point realize goes through this thought process. It's like, hmm, I've got tons and tons of memory. Maybe yeah, I, can I need turn off my page file. Right? I, I actually have a blog entry about this, and so it's essentially the same as the answer. But the, the punchline is, it's never worth it. It's you, <laughs> you have you may not think thought about
0: this nearly as much. As the people at Microsoft. So first of all, the page <laughs> file doesn't work the way you think it works. Like you were probably taught in Computer Science 101 that once in a while, a file is swapped out. You know, you run out of memory, and then it starts swapping yep. to the page file. Yes. And actually, what's happening is, it's first of all, it's preemptively swapping to the page file. Secondly, a lot of things just live on disk, and they only swap into memory when they're needed. So, for example, an executable file for an app that you're launching just starts out on disk. And only the pieces that are used come in, and they can be thrown away instantly they don't have to be moved out. They can just be dropped because they can always be reloaded later. And if the operating system is bored, it's going to use some of its spare time to move things out. Bored. Yeah. <laughs> so that later, when it's not bored, when it's really busy, it won't. So anyway, so there's a good article about that. It's got, it's got a great summary on, 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 uh, on, uh, in, in one line at the beginning. What does that stand for? T-L semicolon TL.
2: Too long. You don't know that? Too, too long, long. didn't read. Drop. He- this is a great answer because he put the summary at the top. So you don't even have to read it, which is awesome. Yeah, but so what is T-O- Q? Well, T-O-X. Q-U-U-X, which is unpronounceable even by me. I'm going to pronounce uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> great answer. And you, what a kick-butt answer. Because he puts go, the go best and, part. Of the- yeah, and this, this dude,
0: Q-U-U-X, whoever he or she may be, it's just a stick figure in the drawing. But if you click through, um, he's he's got a, a website, right? That's visible to the public, not just to us, right? Yes, the website no,
2: the, the public. So
0: he's public. actually got a really good blog here that's like a great system administration blog, which I want to re- recommend at qux.tumblr.com. Tumblr, cool. um, he's got uh, just a few posts that he had up um, that I saw uh, on the homepage there um, are awesome. This looks like a really, really interesting um, and well written uh, website for system administrators. So Very cool. kudos to. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Great answer,
0: and do not yeah. get rid of your page file. <laughs> yeah, and don't, and it's just a general attitude thing. It's like don't, uh, yes. don't be second guessing. You know, what? there's a there's a problem that we always had, and it, and it's more common. I hate to say this, it's more common I, I, among Unix system administrators than among Windows system administrators. Which is they get the thing out of the box, they get the operating system out of the box, they install it, and then they're going to want to do 47 things to that system before they can use it. Mostly removing oh. things that were put there that they don't understand. So they have an attitude that's like, what are all these services that are running? I'm going to kill all these services, and then my server will be really fast. Yes. And then all of a sudden, you know, okay, it works for a while, and then you go and you install fog and it doesn't run because some basic service that everybody else has has been removed, severely deleted from the operating system Uh by some system administrator that thinks they know better or it really doesn't.
2: You sound a little bitter about this. I am
0: bitter because it's all about tech support calls. <laughs> it comes come yeah. from from people that are like, you know, they there they, there is generally a philosophy that security flaws come from things, often come from things that you don't even realize you have running, and mm-hmm. that probably shouldn't be running. And uh, you know, why, why do you need that? You know, rem- it's it's a like RPC, you know, endpoint service or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like let's just let's just delete all these things and strip them down. And so making stripped down systems is a lot of fun. On, on the Unix side, on the Windows side, you really don't, you really should know what you're doing, and the f- there there are better ways to protect your system against random shit like firewalls. So, um, uh, uh, so so actually, and actually, Windows system managers are just less apt
2: to do this. And it's yeah. good to understand well, what your computer's doing. <laughs> Right, right, but there's a point at which you're interfering. You think you're right. The, there's a point at which you think you're smarter than the people who built the operating system, which is almost never ever true. Right. And there's right. there's a, there's a similar problem on the programming side, which is I'm smarter than the people who designed the language. I'm gonna write right? my own malloc. <laughs> right. I'm gonna write my own malloc, or I'm gonna do garbage collection right now because I know there's just way too, way too much garbage. This seems like a good time to do garbage collection. <laughs> we need to take out the garbage right now because it's really bothering me, and you need to do it now because I'm <laughs> I know what I'm doing as a programmer, and right. you don't. Right. Yeah, no, Be tread very, very carefully here. I mean, that's all I'm going to say is, like, generally don't do it and tread very carefully if you feel like you must. So. And,
0: you know, and if you're treading in one of those areas, you should be doing so because that's your area of specialty. That, that's something you're responsible for, you know? So, yeah. for example, if you're, um, a, you know, if you're airline and you care about threads, then you should be obsessive, compulsive about how you use operating system threads, operating system memory, and stuff like that, because that's where you're adding value, really, to the world. Yeah, right. Um, you know, and similarly, Damien, you you were working on CouchDB, and so not not getting fragmented in memory so that you can have long running stable processes, especially with different size, lots and lots of different size objects, is, is something that you really had to get right. Yep, absolutely. So you know, you're going to muck around with that, but you're not going to muck around with you know, oh gosh, I need a different uh, 3D graphics library or something, or I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna make my own IDE. If you uh, – listeners, if you have a question that you would like to um, – uh, oh, my God, they brought pizza right outside of my office. Okay, show's over. Goodbye.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's pizza time.
0: <laughs> um, wait, we can uh, okay. an announcement. Quick. Uh, first of all, uh, Damien, thank you very much for being on with us.
3: Yep. Thank you, Damien. Thank you for having
0: me. Where, where can where can people find you on, on the internet besides couch, Googling for CouchDB? Do you have a blog? DamienCats.net. Uh, Damien da- with an E. Cats yeah, with yep. an A. D a m i e n k a t z. Cats, and that stands yeah. for Cohen Sadiq. Um, and uh, the, uh, to our listeners, if you have any questions, could you please call in the Stack Overflow podcast hotline? Now, this is a problem. I have to look this up. <laughs> what is the what is the phone What is the phone number for that? I don't have. I got a new computer here. I don't know how to look things up anymore. It's a podcast hotline. Yeah, people can call our phone number. And leave questions, which we play on a future show, um, as we did yep. today.
2: Oh, yeah, here's And number. I have the number. Yeah. I got it. Go ahead. It's 646-826-3879. Just call. Or you
0: can, yep, just call that number, leave a voicemail, make it less than 90 seconds. Or you can record an MP3 or Ogvorbis file, which you can then email to podcast at stackoflow.com. Uh, we have a transcript uh, wiki, which is a, a contribution contributors from around the uh, the world. all kind of go in there and transcribe parts of this podcasts that they think are interesting to them to be preserved for posterity and for the benefit of the hearing impaired. And that will be linked to from the show notes where you can find hyperlinks to all of the exciting events, you know, worldwide web hyperlinks to all the exciting uh, things that we've mentioned in this podcast, um, graciously created by Jeff. So uh, that's all linked to from the show notes at blog.stackoflow.com. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky.
1: The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.